Chapter 5, Part 4 of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 5, Tendencies in American. Part 4, Foreign Influences Today. No other great nation of today supports so large a foreign population as the United States, either relatively or absolutely. None other contains so many foreigners forced to an effort, often ignorant and ineffective, to master the national language. Since 1820, nearly 35 million immigrants have come into the country, and of them probably not 10 million brought any preliminary acquaintance with English with them. The census of 1910 showed that nearly 1,500,000 persons then living permanently on American soil could not speak it at all, that more than 13 million had been born in other countries, chiefly of different language, and that nearly 20 million were the children of such immigrants and hence under the influence of their speech habits. Altogether there were probably at least 25 million whose house language was not the Vulgate and who thus spoke it in competition with some other language. No other country houses so many aliens. In Great Britain the alien population for a century past has never been more than 2% of the total population. And since the passage of the Alien Act of 1905 it has tended to decline steadily. In Germany in 1910 there were but 1,259,873 aliens and a population of more than 60 million. And of these nearly a half were German-speaking Austrians and Swiss. In France in 1906 there were a million foreigners in a population of 39 million, and a third of them were French-speaking Belgians, Luxembourgese, and Swiss. In Italy in 1911 there were but 350,000 in a population of 35 million. This large and constantly reinforced admixture of foreigners has naturally exerted a constant pressure upon the national language, for the majority of them at least in the first generation have found it quite impossible to acquire it in any purity, and even their children have grown up with speech habits differing radically from those of correct English. The effects of this pressure are obviously twofold. On the one hand, the foreigner, struggling with a strange and difficult tongue, makes efforts to simplify it as much as possible, and so strengthens the native tendency to disregard all niceties and complexities, and on the other hand he corrupts it with words and locutions from the language he has brought with him, and sometimes with whole idioms and grammatical forms. We have seen in earlier chapters how the Dutch and French of colonial days enriched the vocabulary of the colonists, how the German immigrants of the first half of the nineteenth century enriched it still further, and how the Irish of the same period influenced its everyday usages. The same process is still going on. The Italians, the Slavs, and above all the Russian Jews make steady contributions to the American vocabulary and idiom, and though these contributions are often concealed by quick and complete naturalization, their foreignness to English remains nonetheless obvious. I should worry, in its way is correct English, but in essence it is as completely Yiddish as kosher, ganov, shadchen, oyoy, matzah, or mazuma. Black hand, too, is English in form, but it is nevertheless as plainly an Italian loanword as spaghetti, mafia, or padrone. 
The extent of such influences upon American, and particularly upon spoken American, remains to be studied. In the whole literature I can find but one formal article upon the subject. That article deals specifically with the suffix F-E-S-T, fest, which came into American from the German and was probably suggested by familiarity with Songerfest. There is no mention of it in any of the dictionaries of Americanisms, and yet, in such forms as Talkfest and Gabfest, it is met with almost daily. So too with Heimer, Inski, and Bund. Several years ago, Heimer had a great vogue in slang and was rapidly done to death. But Weisenheimer remains, in colloquial use, as a facetious synonym for smart aleck, and after a while it may gradually acquire dignity. Far lowlier words, in fact, have worked their way in. But Inski, perhaps, is going the same route. As for the words in Bund, many of them are already almost accepted. Plunderbund is now at least as good as Pork Barrel, and Slush Fund, and Money Bund is frequently heard in Congress. Such locutions creep in stealthily, and are secure before they are suspected. Current slang, out of which the more decorous language dredges a large part of its raw materials, is full of them. Nix and Nixi, for no, are debased forms of the German Nix. Abernicht, once popular as camouflage, is obviously Abernicht. And a steady flow of nouns, all needed to designate objects introduced by immigrants, enriches the vocabulary. The Hungarians not only brought their national condiment with them, they also brought its name, paprika, and that name is now thoroughly American. Footnote. Paprika is in the standard dictionary, but I have been unable to find it in any English dictionary. Another such word is kimono, from the Japanese. End footnote. In the same way, the Italians brought in camara, padrone, spaghetti, and a score of other substantives, and the Jews made contributions from Yiddish and Hebrew, and greatly reinforced certain old borrowings from German. Once such a loan word gets in, it takes firm root. During the first year of American participation in the World War, an effort was made on patriotic grounds to substitute Liberty Cabbage for sauerkraut, but it quickly failed, for the name had become as completely Americanized as the thing itself. And so Liberty Cabbage seemed affected and absurd. In the same way, a great many other German words survived the passions of the time. Nor could all the influence of the professional patriots obliterate that German influence which is fastened upon the American yes, something of the quality of ja. Constant familiarity with such contributions from foreign languages and with the general speech habits of foreign peoples has made American a good deal more hospitable to loanwords than English, even in the absence of special pressure. Let the same word knock at the gates of the two languages, and American will admit it more readily and give it at once a wider and more intimate currency. Examples are afforded by café, vaudeville, employee, boulevard, cabaret, toilette, exposé, kindergarten, depot, fate, and menu. Café in American is a word of much larger and more varied meaning than in English, and is used much more frequently and by many more persons. So is employé in the naturalized form of employee. So is toilet 
We have even seen it as a euphemism for native terms that otherwise would be in daily use. So is kindergarten. I read lately of a kindergarten for the elementary instruction of conscripts. Such words are not unknown to the Englishman, but when he uses them it is with a plain sense of their foreignness. In American they are completely naturalized, as is shown by the spelling and pronunciation of most of them. An American would no more think of attempting the French pronunciation of depot, or of putting the French accents upon it, than he would think of spelling toilet with the final T-E, or of essaying to pronounce Anheuser in the German manner. Often curious battles go on between such loan words and their English equivalents, and with varying fortunes. In 1895, Weber and Fields tried to establish Music Hall in New York, but it quickly succumbed to vaudeville theater, as Variety had succumbed to vaudeville before it. In the same way, Lawn Fate, without the circumflex accent and commonly pronounced Feet, has elbowed out the English Garden Party. But now and then, when the competing loanword happens to violate American speech habits, a native term ousts it. The French crash offers an example. It has been entirely displaced by day nursery. The English in this matter display their greater conservatism very plainly. Even when a loan word enters both English and American simultaneously, a sense of foreignness lingers about it on the other side of the Atlantic much longer than on this side, and it is used with far more self-consciousness. The word matinee offers a convenient example. To this day, the English commonly printed in italics give it its French accent and pronounce it with some attempt at the French manner. But in America, it is entirely naturalized, and the most ignorant man uses it without any feeling that it is strange. The same lack of any sense of linguistic integrity is to be noticed in many other directions. For example, in the freedom with which the Latin per is used with native nouns, one constantly sees per day, per dozen, per hundred, per mile, etc. in American newspapers, even the most careful. But in England the more seemly ah is almost always used, or the noun itself is made Latin, as in per diem. Per, in fact, is fast becoming an everyday American word. Such phrases as per your letter or order of the 15th instant are incessantly met with in business correspondence. The same greater hospitality is shown by the readiness with which various un-English prefixes and affixes come into fashion. For example, super and itis. The English accept them gingerly. The Americans take them in with enthusiasm and naturalize them instanter. The same deficiency in reserve is to be noted in nearly all other colonialized dialects. The Latin American variants of Spanish, for example, have adopted a great many words which appear in true Castilian only as occasional guests. Thus in Argentina, matinee, menu, debut, toilette, and femme de chambre are perfectly good Argentine, and in Mexico, sandwich and club have been thoroughly naturalized. The same thing is to be noted in the French of Haiti, in the Portuguese of Brazil, and even in the Danish of Norway. Once a language spreads beyond the country of its origin and begins to be used by people born in the German phrase to a different Sprachgefühl, 
The sense of loyalty to its vocabulary is lost along with the instinctive feeling for its idiomatic habits. How far this destruction of its forms may go in the absence of strong contrary influences is exhibited by the rise of the Romance languages from the vulgar Latin of the Roman provinces, and here at home, by the decay of foreign languages in competition with English. The Yiddish that the Jews from Russia bring in is German debased with Russian, Polish, and Hebrew. In America it quickly absorbs hundreds of words and idioms from the speech of the streets. Various conflicting German dialects among the so-called Pennsylvania Dutch, and in the German areas of the Northwest combine in a patois that in its end forms shows almost as much English as German. Classical examples of it are Es gibt gar kein Jus, Ich kann es nicht standen, and Mein Stallion hat über die Fens geschumpt, und dem Nachbar sein Wiet abschulich gedamacht. The use of Gleich for to like by false analogy from Gleich, like, similar, is characteristic. In the same way the Scandinavians in the Northwest corrupt their native Swedish and Dano-Norwegian. Thus American Norwegian is heavy with such forms as Stritkar, Rytiva, Nektoy, and Statesprusen, for Streetcar, Rightaway, Necktie, and Statesprison, and admits such phrases as Detmeka Engine Differens. The changes that Yiddish has undergone in America, though rather foreign to the present inquiry, are interesting enough to be noticed. First of all, it has admitted into its vocabulary a large number of everyday substantives, among them boy, chair, window, carpet, floor, dress, hat, watch, ceiling, consumption, property, trouble, bother, match, change, party, birthday, picture, paper, only in the sense of newspaper, gambler, show, hall, kitchen, store, bedroom, key, mantelpiece, closet, lounge, broom, tablecloth, paint, landlord, fellow, tenant, shop, wages, foreman, sleeve, collar, cuff, button, cotton, thimble, needle, pocket, bargain, sale, remnant, sample, haircut, razor, waist, basket, school, scholar, teacher, baby, mustache, butcher, grocery, dinner, street, and walk. And with them, many characteristic Americanisms, for example, bluffer, faker, boodler, grafter, gangster, crook, guy, kike, piker, squealer, bum, cadet, boom, bunch, pants, vest, loafer, jumper, stoop, sales lady, icebox, and raise, with their attendant verbs and adjectives. These words are used constantly. Many of them have quite crowded out the corresponding Yiddish words. For example, engel, meaning boy, it is a Slavic loan word in Yiddish, has been obliterated by the English word. A Jewish immigrant almost invariably refers to his son as his boy, though strangely enough he calls his daughter his maidel. Die Boys mit die Maidlock, haben a good time, is excellent American Yiddish. In the same way, Fenster has been completely displaced by window, though Tour, door, 
has been left intact. Tish. Table also remains, but chair is always used, probably because few of the Jews had chairs in the old country. There the bankel, a bench without a back, was in use. Chairs were only for the well-to-do. Floor has apparently prevailed because no invariable corresponding word was employed at home. In various parts of Russia and Poland a floor is a dill, a podloge, or a brick. So with ceiling. There were six different words for it. Yiddish inflections have been fastened upon most of these loan words. Thus, Erhadim Ebgefecht is he cheated him. Zubumt is the American gone to the bad. Fixin is to fix, usin is to use, and so on. The feminine and diminutive suffix k is often added to nouns. Thus, bluffer gives rise to bluffer k, hypocrite. And one also notes dress k, hat k, watched k, and bummer k. Oi, is she a bluffer k? Is good American Yiddish for isn't she a hypocrite? The suffix nick, signifying agency, is also freely applied. All right, nick means an upstart, an offensive boaster, one of whom his fellows would say he is all right with a sneer. Similarly, consumption nick means a victim of tuberculosis. Other suffixes are chick and idge. The first exemplified in boychick, a diminutive of boy, and the second in nextorage meaning the woman next door, an important person in ghetto social life. Some of the loan words, of course, undergo changes on Yiddish-speaking lips. Thus landlord becomes lindler, lounge becomes lunch, tenant becomes tenor, and whiskers loses its final s. Vigafault der Saint Visker, how do you like his beard, is good Yiddish ironically intended. Fellow, of course, changes to the American feller, as in, Rosie hat schon a feller. Rosie has got a feller, i.e. a sweetheart. Show, in the sense of chance, is used constantly, as in, get him a show, give him a chance. Bad boy is adopted bodily, as in, er is a bad boy. To shut up is inflected as one word, as in, er hat nicht gewollt shut upen. He wouldn't shut up. To catch is used in the sense of to obtain, as in catching a gemil of chesed, to raise a loan. Here, by the way, gemilath, chesed, is excellent biblical Hebrew. To bluff, unchanged in form, takes on the new meaning of to lie. A bluffer is a liar. Scores of American phrases are in constant use, among them all right, never mind, I bet you, no sir, and I'll fix you. It is curious to note that sure Mike, borrowed by the American Vulgate from Irish English, has gone over into American Yiddish. Finally, to make an end, here are two complete and characteristic American Yiddish sentences. Sivet cleanin' de rooms, scrubbin' dem floor, washin' de windows, dressin' dem boy, un gen in butcher store, un in grocery. Dernag visi makin' dinner, un in street for a walk. American itself in the Philippines and to a lesser extent in Puerto Rico and on the Isthmus has undergone similar changes under the influence of Spanish and the native dialects. Maurice P. Dunlap offers the following specimen of a conversation between two Americans long resident in Manila. 
Hola, amigo. Comustacayo. Por qué were you hablaing with esa señorita? She wanted a job as lavandera. Cuando? Ten cents, cona de piece. So I told her no carry. Have you had chow? Well, spare it till I sign this chit and I'll take a paseo with you. Here we have an example of Philippine-American that shows all the tendencies of American Yiddish. It retains the general forms of America, but in the short conversation embracing but 41 different words, there are eight loan words from the Spanish, hola, amigo, porque, esa, señorita, lavandera, cuando, and paseo. Two Spanish locutions in a debased form, spera for espera, and no carry for no quiero, two loan words from the Tagalog, comusta and keo, two from pidgin English, chow and chit, one Philippine-American localism, conant, and a Spanish verb with an English inflection, hoblaying. The immigrant in the midst of a large native population, of course, exerts no such pressure upon the national language as that exerted upon an immigrant language by the native but nevertheless, his linguistic habits and limitations have to be reckoned with in dealing with him. And the concessions thus made necessary have a very ponderable influence upon the general speech. In the usual sense, as we have seen, there are no dialects in American. Two natives, however widely their birthplaces may be separated, never have any practical difficulty understanding each other. But there are at least quasi-dialects among the immigrants, the Irish, the German, the Scandinavian, the Italian, the Jewish, and so on. And these quasi-dialects undoubtedly leave occasional marks not only upon the national vocabulary, but also upon the general speech habits of the country, as in the case, for example, of the pronunciation of yes, already mentioned, and in that of the substitution of the diphthong oi for the er sound in such words as world, journal, and burn. A Yiddishism now almost universal among the lower classes of New York and threatening to spread. Footnote. Compare the English of the lower classes in New York City and vicinity. Dialect Notes, Volume 1, Part 9, 1896. It is curious to note that the same corruption occurs in the Spanish spoken in Santo Domingo. The Dominicans thus change porque into boyque. Compare Santo Domingo by Otto Schoenrich. New York, 1918, page 172. End footnote. More important, however, is the support given to a native tendency by the foreigners in capacity for employing or even comprehending syntax of any complexity, or words not of the simplest. This is the tendency toward succinctness and clarity at whatever sacrifice of grace. One English observer, Sidney Lowe, puts the chief blame for the general explosiveness of American upon the immigrant who must be communicated with in the plainest words available, and is not socially worthy of the suavity of circumlocution anyhow. In his turn, the immigrant seizes upon these plainest words as upon a sort of convenient lingua franca. His quick adoption of damn as a universal adjective is traditional, and throws his influence upon the side of the underlying speech habit when he gets on in the Vulgate. Many characteristic Americanisms of the sort to stagger lexicographers, for example, near silk, have come from the Jews, whose progress in business is a good deal faster than their progress in English. Others, as we have seen, have come from the German immigrants of half a century ago, from the so-called Pennsylvania Dutch, who are notoriously ignorant and uncouth, 
and from the Irish who brought with them a form of English already very corrupt. The same and similar elements greatly reinforced the congenital tendencies of the dialect, toward the facile manufacture of compounds, toward a disregard of the distinction between parts of speech, and above all, toward the throwing off of all etymological restraints. End of chapter 5, part 4 Recording by Philip Gould